When I walked out of that doctor's office, I felt as though I was a miniature drugstore. And for some reason, I changed one word. Instead of living with diabetes, I typed reversing diabetes. Because now I'm fighting for my sight, I'm fighting for my limbs, I'm fighting for my life. And I was not going to let anything go unturned. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. In New York City, in the borough of Brooklyn, resides a man by the name of Eric Adams. He actually happens to be the president of the borough of Brooklyn. That by itself is impressive. But what makes Eric Adams truly impressive was the way that he was able to help himself, help his mom, help his friend, and now the entire city of New York. This is a man who woke up one morning and was almost blind. He goes to the doctor. The doctor tells him that he has diabetes. And that runs in his family. But what the doctor also told Eric was, this is the way that it has to be. We can give you medication to help treat this and treat that symptom. But the bottom line is, this is your way of life moving forward. But Eric was a former police officer who had spent his career handling investigations. And so he decided to open the case of his own health. He didn't want to take pill after pill after pill. So he began to do research. And as you'll hear, he had no idea that food played such an enormous role in his health. And today, Eric is as healthy as ever, has great vision, and is inspiring others to follow in his footsteps and to take control of their health. And oh, by the way, diabetes, no longer an issue for him. He just completed a new book called Healthy at Last. And indeed, that is exactly what he is. Great conversation coming your way today. We're going to talk about how he was diagnosed with diabetes at 56, but then his aunt at the age of 57, she had died from diabetes. That was a wake-up call for him as well, and how he was able to use food as a coping mechanism to deal with the stressors that came from being a police officer, especially after the terror attacks of September 11. A great story of transformation and inspiration coming up. Also today, COVID-19 in the crosshairs. As the country reaches a once unthinkable milestone, we will examine the top comorbidities that have turned the coronavirus into the monster that it is. 
Dr. Neil Barnard is here to address those comorbidities and how diet and lifestyle changes can significantly lower the risk of them and how those steps may even help us as we continue to search for an end to this pandemic. But let's start with the reason to smile. This is the true story of Eric Adams, a man who is certainly healthy at last. I am joined now by the gentleman who is the president of the borough of Brooklyn and a gentleman who said that he wanted to take charge of his health. And by God, did he? With that, we welcome Mr. Eric Adams to the exam room. Thank you so very much for being here, sir. Thank you, Chuck. It's good seeing you. And I appreciate you allowing me to speak to your your listeners and audience. You know, and during these times, we are considered influencers when we have a method of communicating with people and you just don't share your airways with anyone. So I consider this as a compliment that you like what I'm doing because you're bringing me into your listeners family. And I, I appreciate that. Man, I don't just like what you're doing. I love what you're doing. And I, I am just beyond excited. The fact that you have a new book coming out next month called healthy at last. This is, I mean, this is a long time coming for you. Talk to me about the process of putting everything on paper that you've been through over the past five years or so. You know, it's, it's fascinating when you think about it. Uh, my mother told me as a child, if you are fortunate to live long enough, you're going to be misfortunate to experience pain. The only question you have to ask yourself is how do you turn pain into purpose? And I found that the painful moment, I thought I was buried with diabetes just to learn that I was really planted. And this book is the fruits of, fruit of my harvest. And I'm hoping that it feeds others on how to deal with chronic diseases and laying out what happened to me, what I learned, and really how to take control of every aspect of your life, not just your physical presence, but also your spiritual and your emotional. Absolutely. And I think that the best way to get that information out there is to connect with, in this case, the reader. And that is through your story. And it's such a powerful story. And you really, you dive right into it at the top of the book, talking about waking up one morning and being blind, unable to see. That just really hooks people in. Can you talk to us a little bit about the feelings that you felt that day? You, you captured it eloquently in the book, but I'm not sure that even a million words can quite describe exactly what that situation was like for you. And that's fascinating because it happens in a very rapid fashion. Imagine going from a normal day where, you know, I felt as though that, okay, you, I am losing, you know, vision as you get older, you, you know, you go to the reading glasses and then you go to uh, a heavy prescription. And I just really thought that this just, this was a natural transition. And uh, one morning when I woke up as I outlined in the book, I woke up and all of a sudden I couldn't see the alarm clock and I cleared my, tried to clear my eyes like we normally do in the morning. I thought it was sleep still in my eyes and I was unable to see. And, I, and, it, and it hit me that 
uh, Eric, you can't see. And I, I thought that, is this something temporary? Is this something that happened? Uh, and I just eventually, uh, you know, went to the doctors and it was at the same time that I was experiencing discomfort in my stomach. I later, later learned out to be an ulcer and that I was um, diabetic. And it was really that ulcer, which took me to the doctor, probably saved my life, saved my limbs, saved my vision. Man, well, you sound cool, calm, and collected about that now. But man, let me tell you, if that was me, I would be panicking big time. Um, but here's the thing. You get diagnosed with diabetes at that trip to the hospital. And as you mentioned in your book, diabetes runs rampant in your family. I mean, it's as common as air almost. And you were 56 at the time that you were diagnosed, correct? Yes, yes, 56. And I often, you know, when I talk about uh, the talking about it being in my family, thinking that it was hereditary, I re reference in the book uh, the day when my mother was in Florida with her other siblings and other sisters. And one of they were actually there for a funeral. And she forgot her diabetes medicine, but they said, hey, no problem. Uh, you know, I have metformin, I have this, they all have similar medicine. Little did they know that they were all using the same medicine. As I say, it wasn't so much of their DNA, it was their dinner. You know, what they were eating was in common. And so the breakdown of the body was going to be in common at the same time. Well, here's here's why I brought up the 56 point in that, because you also had an aunt who died from diabetes, complications of diabetes at 57. Yes. So here you are getting that diagnosis at 56. You know that you had an aunt who died at 57 from the very thing that you were just diagnosed with. That had to have entered your mind. It, it did. And I thought about it uh, when the doctor told me, I recall saying to myself, that, well, you knew this was coming. It is as though uh, we have this sort of sense of inevitability of just based on who we are and where we were born. And just for that moment, I said that. And then I took that moment and said, wait a minute, no, this is not going to be uh, my story. I'm not going to have the same ending in this chapter as my aunt did. And that's why I decided to do something different. And I remember saying to myself that while I'm not a doctor, but you know what? I'm an ex-cop, so I know how to do investigations. And darn it, I know how to read. And <laughs> so the goal was to let's start investigating and just finding out, you know, what is this? And it's, it's amazing how we get uh, prognosis and diagnosis and we just take it from the person who's given it to us without saying, let me go find out what this means and what is the latest out there uh, to deal with uh, any type of medical diagnosis we receive. So what was your hypothesis then as you began to do your investigation? Did you suspect that food played a role in here or were you still leading toward hereditary? That is, that is, that is a, an amazing question. This is the first time anyone ever asked me. And that's a great question because all I remember, uh, as I lined out in the book, was taking a, all the medicine. I went to the doctor's office, no medicine at the time. When I walked in, when I walked out, I had medicine for my vision loss, medicine for the neuropathic nerve damage to my right 
a thigh. I couldn't even feel my right thigh. My fingers and my toes were tingling all the time. Uh, the the ulcer, the high blood pressure, high cholesterol. When I walked out of that doctor's office, I felt as though I was a miniature drugstore. I felt like I was Walgreens or Dwayne Reed or something from all the medicine. And there were a bunch of pamphlets and all the pamphlets said, living with diabetes. And I remember placing everything on the side of my computer, my laptop, with all of the medicine in the pamphlets. And for some reason, I changed one word from that pamphlet. Instead of living with diabetes, I typed reversing diabetes. I had no idea what was going to come up. I had no idea that food had a role. I had no idea. I don't know what I was uh, searching for. I was just basically taking a shot in the dark and just saying, listen, if there's something out there, done it, I'm going to try to find it because now I'm fighting for my sight. I'm fighting for my limbs. I'm fighting for my life. And I was not going to let anything go unturned before I find an answer. And so I had no idea that food was a pathway for me. Well, here's the interesting thing about that is that, yes, okay, there is this huge connection with food and that seems to be driving not just diabetes, but as you also get into the book, so many other diet-related chronic diseases. But you also write in the book that you used food as a coping mechanism, especially when you were a police officer. After seeing tragic events, you write about going and and eating at a diner at 4 a.m. after 9-11 and not even giving a second thought to what it was that you are actually eating. But when we build these relationships with food, those can be the most difficult relationships to break up from. So when you're hearing that food is driving this, were you concerned like, man, I'm going to have to figure out another way to deal with all of this drama in my life? So true. So true. Powerful question. Uh, I I believe that we often look at our physical presence, but I'm a firm believer that our spirit has an anatomy also. And the things we do, we try to feed both of them, our physical and our spiritual. And I knew once I started thinking it through that not only was food feeding my vital organs and not feeding them with the right things, uh, and I was becoming obese, my spirit was obese also. I was using food to really address some of the underlying reasons uh, that I was going through PTSD and trauma, uh, reliving the episodes that I was experiencing as a police officer and everyone else is experiencing. If you're a nurse, you're experiencing trauma all the time. If you are a child protective custody employee, you're experiencing trauma, firefighter, EMT. Uh, When you think about it, uh, those of us who are, are city employee, employees, public servants, uh, people don't call us to invite us to the birthday party. They call us when the party has been disrupted, something bad has happened. And we internalize that and think we can just hamburger it away, Philly steak it away, donut it away. But no, it's not going away. It's still part of us. And when I started to eat right, I knew I had to also start taking control of the reasons I was eating poorly in some cases because I was really uh, trying to self-medicate myself with food and I connected, you know, bad day, pint of Haagen-Dazs, bad day, 
go get the dollar menu from McDonald's. Bad day, go get a nice uh, cupcake or a big donut, uh, fried sugar, latent processed food was really feeding those bad days. And I equated them. This is how you got over those bad days. Right. Well, you mentioned all of those bad days, but what about celebrating the good days? Did you turn to that, that kind of food as well? Very, very true. And that's what's, what's very interesting, that on the both ends of the spectrum, there was no middle. Everything was to the extreme. If I had a real bad day, I wanted to use food to self-medicate. And if I wanted to celebrate, I would use food as an indicator of celebration. Got to have that great cake. Got to have uh, that uh, fried, that nice big steak. You know, all of those things, uh, food played a role of celebration and also the state of despair. And that is really something when you start to think about it is that because of both of those ends of the spectrum was where we are in our lives a lot. So there was never a time to really give your body something healthy to eat and consume because you were doing it in the wrong way. And how long did it take for you to really kind of rethink and retool your relationship? I mean, not use food as that coping mechanism or cause for celebration anymore. I would imagine that's a process that it would be for you and a lot of other people as well. Well, you know, we all have our our motivators. No two people have the same motivators. And my motivation really was, you know, for my son. Uh, I want to be there and walk him down the aisle. I want to be there uh, to enjoy playing sports with him and enjoying a nice, healthy relationship with him. And where he doesn't feel as though I have to take care of my dad. Uh, I don't want to disrupt his life based on my behaviors. And that was my motivation. And when I was able to search and find out, hey, there's a pathway out of this that you don't have to follow the same path that others have followed. You start off with metformin, then insulin, uh, then more drugs, then uh, probably kidney failure to do dialysis, amputation, blindness. I did not want to go down that road. And that was my motivation, uh, that if I can have an opportunity to take control of my life, when I saw, based on my Google search, that you can reverse I said, you know what? I'm not going to allow anything to get in the way of what has motivated me to move forward. There you go. That why is so important, isn't it? That why yes, is what is. keeps you going. Yes, sir. <laughs> well well uh, said. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up your son, Jordan, because he, he too has mentioned uh, close to the top of the book, you mentioned uh, the fact that he has asthma, was diagnosed at a young age. I think that you, you said at the age of two. And then yes. you draw the connection that fruits and vegetables have an uh, antioxidant properties that can reduce those symptoms. So that, you know, they're anti-inflammatory. And so that got me to thinking about where we are today with COVID-19 and that being such an inflammatory respiratory virus. And I'm wondering, you know, if that message out there right now could also resonate for people, you know, just eat more fruits, eat more vegetables, eat that plant-based diet. And perhaps this pandemic that we're in right now, we wouldn't be in such a dire situation. And I touch, and I touch on that slightly uh, in the book, uh, but you're right. It's, it's really unfortunate that the country didn't take this opportunity 
to really put people on the pathway of healthy eating. You know, because sometimes when we are in a real bad place, it's an opportunity to change our direction of doing things. And I thought this was an amazing chance when particularly here in New York City, we are feeding millions of people due to emergency food distribution because for a period of time, people could not go outdoors, particularly our elders and even our children, we were feeding in many of our food um, centers. And we could have used this opportunity to have one solution to solve a multitude of problems. Uh, we knew we had to feed people, so feeding them food was one problem we had to solve. But we could have also fed them healthy food. That would have introduced them to the power of healthy food, good tasting food. They were dependent on the city and the state to eat. This was an opportunity to introduce them to something new. And by doing so, we would have strengthened their immune system. So this would have prevented uh, many of the cases that had comorbidities, uh, which is a fancy term for diabetes, heart disease, respiratory issues, uh, hypertension. We could have actually gave, gave these families healthy food that would have strengthened their immune system, made them less likely to have to be admitted to the hospital. Over 90% of the people were admitted to the hospital had comorbidities and over 90% uh, died uh, that, had, that, that had comorbidities and contracted coronavirus, uh, passed away from those that died. And so when you look at it, we should have used this opportunity to say, hey, we have a crisis that food can prevent and assist with. We should have fed people healthy food. We missed that opportunity. I was able to partner with some of the groups here like Campaign Against Hunger, and we were able to do a good job of getting healthy food out to families, and we want to continue to do so as we cycle uh, out of COVID-19. Well, let's you know continue down this path here for a second. And uh, you were alluding to this, but I mean, let's talk about seriously how important this is right now. You take a look at the statistics and very early on in the pandemic, it became abundantly clear that this disease was affecting uh, black families, Hispanic families at a rate far, I mean, just far greater than white families. And so when you, you talk about really getting this message out to people who need it the most, how important is it to you, the timing of the release of this book to try to get this, in fact, to those families who need it the most right now? Crucial, very important. And you're right. You look at the numbers, they speak for themselves. Uh, over 60% of the people who uh, contracted coronavirus were black and brown in the city of New York. Uh, the number of families, individuals who died was substantially high in a black and brown community. So it's about putting information, empowering information in the hands of people. And that's why we talk about uh, the connection of slave food and uh, soul food and the connectivity of that. And really, uh, not only uh, black families, but those from Central America, South America, the Caribbean, uh, any place where uh, colonies were created, food would also uh, brought in. I always talk about Hawaii. Uh, just think about Hawaii, all the fresh uh, fruit and vegetables there. The One of the number one staple foods there is Spam. Uh, colonizers went in, taught people how to eat Spam, 
incorporated into the Chinese, into the Hawaiian culture, and they move away from those fresh fruits and vegetables, and they go to spam and look at the health crises uh, that they have in Hawaii around diabetes, heart disease, and other issues. With all of that healthy food, uh, the older Hawaiians of generations ago are doing much better health-wise than the younger because they grew up on a particular uh, food staple than what they're doing now. So you, you are correct, 100% correct, uh, when we look at uh, the connection of what happened with COVID-19 and how the food in these communities have an impact of it. Fast food is everywhere. They call it soul food, but there's a real connection to slavery and the origin of this food, soul food. The only thing that soul food and slave food um, have in, in, in common, they both start with S and they're both destructive to the body. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your friend Cliff, who you write about in the book, a heart attack survivor. I was having a conversation recently with Dr. Kim Williams, a steam cardiologist out of Chicago. And he was telling me a story just a couple of weeks ago about how Serena Williams, uh, when she was having some medical issues, uh, was initially dismissed basically by her doctors, said, don't worry about it. And he's telling me that this happens time and time and time again in the black community. And then you write about Cliff in your book, and Cliff is actually telling the doctor about the conversation that he had with you, and Cliff is talking about eating a whole food plant-based diet, and the doctor says to him, it's too hard. But it turns out that the doctor himself <laughs> is eating a whole food plant-based diet, and so I'm wondering now, is that kind of what was happening there with Cliff? <laughs> so, so true. And Cliff is a good friend. I've known him for uh, close to uh, 35, uh, 40 years. Uh, was an amazing detective, uh, served uh, for a substantial amount of time in the New York City Police Department and the Transit Police Department. And when he, he, when he had his heart attack, uh, the doctor stated that it was a good thing he came into the hospital. A friend drove him there. He stated that if he would have gone to sleep, he would not have, uh, he would not have uh, awakening after going to sleep. And it was so important that he received the medical care. But I remember him when, when he shared it with me, I told him, Cliff, you're going to have to make a, a, a decision. You're a good detective. You're not going to do investigations. I'm going to give you a series of books so that you can read and you make your final determination. But that information should not have come from me. It should have come from his doctor. But you see, as I talk about in the book, and many people are surprised to know how our, the predispositions that we have, our beliefs uh, that we have, and some of our biases are really subliminal in nature. And so we show the stats that how some medical professionals in medical school thought black skin was thicker, thought blacks had a higher tolerance of pain, and just thought differently about their black patients. And that's what happened with Cliff. His doctor, his cardiologist felt as though uh, he couldn't follow a plant-based diet instead of at least giving people the option. That's all we must do in our medical institution. Give people the option. We give them the option that you could have a stent, you could have open heart surgery, you can uh, do so many other things, the type of medicine. How about giving them a lifestyle medicine option and, and help them 
with real behavior scientists and support and dietitians so that they can sustain a good, healthy life. Man, I could continue on with this conversation for days. <laughs> Believe you me, uh, I get fired up, man. Um, but I, I want to, I know that we only have a couple minutes left, but I, I cannot end this interview without talking about what it was you were able to accomplish with your mom and helping her transition over to the plant-based diet and improving her health. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? So important. And I didn't, I didn't go to mom and say, listen, mom, you need to, you need to eat differently. Uh, this is something you need to do. I didn't. I lived my life by example. And I showed her uh, what I was doing. And, and I allowed her to see. And she came to me and said, uh, son, I want to try. And I told the mom, I love you. And I want you to, to have a healthy uh, life. Uh, and it's not about living forever. It's about the quality of life while we are alive. And mom said she'll try. She was diabetic for 15 years. She was on insulin for seven years. After two months of going on a whole food, plant-based diet, mom cycled off her insulin. She called me and stayed a son. Uh, they had taken me off my insulin. Uh, she was over 80 years old at the time. And that really uh, meant so much to me because I want all the moms to know and the dads and the cousins and the nieces and, and aunties all to know that how many times have we prematurely uh, went to the hospital or prematurely lost a loved one. How many times we got that call that a loved one had a heart attack. It's just really empowering to know that you can wrap up a book like this, Healthy at Last, give it out for a holiday, give it to someone you love. Let them, they may not read it when they get it. They may read it after coming home from a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. They may say, let me reach for this book. They may read it when they are told that they may have to go on dialysis one day. So we don't know when a person will have that entry point, but at least they will have the information readily available. So if they say, I want to try something different, I want to go on a new path, I want to do like Eric and not type living with, but reversal, at least they will have this starting place to do so. Oh, yeah, man. That is so well put. And last question. I, I also cannot let you off the hook here. You have so many great recipes in that book. So when somebody picks it up and it, it gets delivered from Amazon or wherever it is that they're getting the book from, October 13th, what is the first recipe they should turn to? One of my great is pasta with kale and uh, vegan sausage or the uh, polenta stacks with black bean and corn salsa. I love it. There's a bunch of recipes here. Uh, if you like a black bean pumpkin, uh, you know, with sweet pepper salsa and, and lime mix. I mean, there's some good, good recipes. And you can even look at the, the, the meal I have on the cover. <laughs> it's a great tasting meal that I enjoy and really call people to come out easy read, it's not even considered a book. It's a conversation where I feel as though I'm in your living room. Uh, I'm in your den. I'm sitting down on your porch with you. And I'm just taking you into my life and saying that no matter what people say to you and something is impossible, trust me when I tell you, you can be healthy at last. The body you have inside you that you know exists and you always want to see, it is there for you. The taking one step at a time, one page at a time. Let's be healthy at last. 
Man, you talking them recipes, got my mouth watering. I got to dive this side <laughs> of my mouth, man. Dag, gone. That sounds good. Uh, Eric Adams, Healthy at Last is the book. We are going to put a link to go ahead and pre-order it right now in the episode notes and just scroll on down. It's also in the show description if you're watching this on Facebook or on YouTube. Eric Adams, president of the Borough of Brooklyn. Thank you so very much for your time, sir. Thank you. Appreciate you. Great seeing you again. You can find a link to order your copy of Eric's book, Healthy at Last, in the episode notes. Just go ahead and scroll on down. What a conversation. He's such an amazing guy. I love it when he's on the show. We're also going to put in the episode notes a link to my previous interview with him. You can get the full story of his health journey. Man, Eric Adams. I suspect that that gentleman is going places. That's just my thought. What do you think about the way he's been able to implement Meatless Mondays in New York City public schools? He's the guy behind that. Spearheading that drive. Making sure that kids get quality nutrition as they learn. And when you think about the percentage of children in many major cities whose primary source of food is at school making sure then that they are getting healthy food being served to them that is a big step in the right direction but seriously though to go from waking up one day and being blind to being in the position that he is today more people need to hear this story More people need to hear his story. So I am glad he was able to share it with us on the program today. Let's move on. Next up on the exam room is Dr. Neil Barnard. He will be addressing the five leading conditions fueling COVID-19, those underlying conditions that we have heard so much about. Because indeed, the spotlight is on the coronavirus and COVID-19 today as we mark the 200,000th death from the pandemic here in the U.S. You know, it was soon after its arrival that doctors began to notice that patients who had certain pre-existing conditions, they were becoming sicker and dying at far higher rates than other patients. And wouldn't you know the majority of those conditions? The same ones. They have been fueling the U.S. health crisis for years. We're talking about chronic illnesses often brought on by poor eating habits and that standard American diet. Now, during this interview with Dr. Barnard, you're going to hear him reference slides that he was showing at the time. And we put a link up to this episode that this interview was taken from of the exam room live. You can go ahead and check that out by clicking that link in the episode notes. But even without the visuals, You're going to learn a lot about the way that dietary and lifestyle adjustments, improvements can help treat obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and cancer. The latter two are the leading two causes of death in the U.S. so far this year. What do you think the third is? 
That is why this is an important conversation with Dr. Barnard here on The Exam Room. How about if we start with with overweight, um, if we can start there? And the reason I want to start there is that this was one of the very first things that we uh, discovered was an issue, and it's been a big problem for our physicians who are in, um, frankly, they're on the front lines in the hospitals in the U.S., a person who's really overweight and they're in the intensive care with COVID, that is a person who's got a real uphill battle. Uh, so let me let me just show you some images, if I may. Um, this is, a, when everything started in China, it was really clear that the people who were overweight or obese, they were in trouble. They were the ones who were going to have severe disease, as opposed to uh, a normal weight person or a slightly underweight person, they tended to do really well. Uh, and then when the disease went to France, uh, they, this was confirmed. This is a quote from uh, the University of uh, Lille, uh, a faculty member there who said, almost all intensive care COVID-19 patients with severe obesity will end up on a ventilator. And a huge number of those never get off it. I mean, they are, it's a death sentence for so many of them. Um, so the, the reason is that, first of all, fat cells express a receptor. And by express, I mean, it, they build a receptor right on the surface of the cell, on the cell membrane. And it's the ACE2 receptor. That's the welcome mat where COVID-19 arrives, where, where the SARS-CoV-2 virus attaches. It's to that, that welcome mat, that ACE2 receptor. And then it can go into the cell, it can multiply, and then spring out like a fountain from the fat cell. The fewer fat cells you have, the better off you're going to be. But the other part of it, is that fat isn't just in your adipose tissue on your thighs or your belly. Um, there are fat cells in the lungs as well. They turn to what are called myofibroblasts, which end up causing the lung to be less elastic. Instead of being able to expand and contract, it becomes stiff and leathery, and that becomes a death sentence too. So here's what it looks like. Um, these are fat cells. And those little Y-shaped things that you see at the top there, looks like a little slingshot or a Y, that's that ACE2 receptor. That is where the virus is going to attach. So all of this has been an issue all year, but I I think it's going to be worse right now. It's going to be October in a minute. It's going to be cold. And we, our inner squirrel is eating like winter is on its way. We're stuffing our cheek with nuts and we're going to be gaining weight. Uh, So I really think that things are going to get worse. Um, November, December, January. Um, But uh, let me share with you one thing that Chuck, I don't think you and I have talked about. And this is a secret weapon that we have when we're trying to lose weight. Yes, a vegan diet is low in calories because there's no animal fat in it. And it's really high in fiber, so it fills you up with fewer calories. That's all true. That's great. And and that's why a vegan diet is, it helps people be skinny. However, there's another aspect of it that people may not realize, and it's the after meal burn. Um, the uh, participants in our research studies come in here to our laboratory. They lie down on a table. Their metabolism is really low because it's early in the morning and they just got out of bed. We give them breakfast. And after they eat breakfast, their metabolism rises. That, that always happens. That breakfast makes your metabolism rise. And same thing for lunch, same thing for dinner. However, after they start a completely low-fat vegan diet, because there's no animal fat in it and it's high in fiber, their after meal metabolism is higher than before. What I mean is they are burning calories faster after meals. Whoa. 
Uh, and by the way, it's not, not a whole lot faster, about 16% faster, but that makes it easier for you to keep the weight off, as you and I have talked about, Chuck, uh, but also to get the weight off in the first place. So uh, what I'm saying is that fatty foods slow the metabolism, but getting the fat out of your diet, getting on a vegan diet, lowers, uh, increases your metabolism. And Chuck, just one more minute. I just want to show you, show you what this looks like. This is one of your cells. This is like a, call it a muscle cell. And it's got mitochondria in it. They are your burners. That's what's burning up calories. But you eat a ham sandwich with mayo and cheese and fat particles get into your cells and they grow. When that happens, that, that fat inside the cell stops the mitochondria from being so effective. They slow down and your after meal burn is suppressed. Today, you start a vegan diet that eliminates all the animal fat. You keep the oils low. What happens to your cell? The fat disappears. And then finally, you can get it back to a good metabolism. So getting the fat out of your cells boosts your after-meal burn. So what do you want to do? Vegan diet, minimize oils, natural high-fiber food. For extra credit, add some exercise, lift up your sneakers. Uh, make sure your thyroid is acting correctly. Your doctor can help you with that. But you do these things. Um, that is the recipe for good, good weight loss. You know what I love about that after meal calorie burn? You, you say like it's not that big of a difference with a vegan diet, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, what did you say? 16%. If, right. you, if you do that after every every single meal over time, I mean, that is a huge big time secret weapon that, that like I think that that's the perfect phrasing for it. Um, you, you know, you're, you're right. What, what if you had a car and you were trying to burn through the gas tank and your carburetor used 16% more gas? I mean, you would you would burn through, you would burn through gas faster. Well, in this case, the fuel is your body fat. And yes, uh, your after meal burn is about 60% um, faster after a person has been on a vegan diet. Man, you got to love that nutrition science. Okay. Uh, One of the other leading comorbidities when it comes to COVID-19 is one that is directly also associated with obesity, and that is diabetes. You look at the statistics, and again, this is another one that we identified very early on when New York was in the midst of its pandemic, and the state uh, health department there did such a magnificent job of really publishing and being very open about all of these comorbidities, very close to the top of the list there was diabetes. Can you talk to us a little bit about the connection here and yeah. diet? Yeah. And when the statistics came out in New York, it, it really was not a big surprise because we saw it in China. In China, the mortality for people with diabetes was dramatically worse than people who didn't have diabetes. And people who had diabetes in poor control, 11% mortality in China compared to 1% mortality for the people in good control. And the difference wasn't huge. Um, the, the lab test we use is hemoglobin A1C. You want it below seven for people with diabetes. If they were at 8.1% uh, A1C, they're, they're, the, the death rate was 11%. It was really high. But if they got it down to 7.3% on average, their uh, mortality much, much lower. Um, unfortunately, Chuck, you know, and I know you have this experience. You talk to people about diabetes and they imagine it all came from eating carbohydrate. And so they're going on low carb diets or avoiding sugar and that kind of thing. Well, avoiding excess sugar is a good idea, but that's not the issue. The issue in diabetes is that the carbohydrates, the sugar that the carbohydrate gives you, which is a good thing, it's not going where it belongs. Sugar is supposed to go into your cells. And if it can't get in your cells, then it builds up in the blood. But we learned this in Japan um, prior to 1980 when the diet in Japan was really very heavy on rice, 
um, vegetables, not that much meat, not much dairy at all. Diabetes was really rare, one to 5% in people over 40, where it, it, in the United States, it's very high. But westernization of the diet in Japan with burgers and fried chicken and cheese and all that kind of stuff uh, meant that by 1990, when westernization was really moving ahead, the diabetes prevalence in Japan was about 11 to 12%. So it just soared way up. Um, and Chuck, if you don't mind, can I show you my cell, cell diagram here for diabetes? Because I, I am struggling to help people understand what causes type 2 diabetes. This is a muscle cell. And your muscle cells are fueled by glucose. And that glucose, blood sugar, is not bad. It's good if the glucose can get into the cell to power it. But it's all outside the cell, and it can't get into the muscle cell. The glucose bounces off, won't go in, until you take a key. The key is insulin. And that insulin key attaches to a receptor on the surface of the cell. And once it does, it signals a little channel to open up and let the glucose come inside. Okay, so the insulin is the key to this whole thing. What could ever go wrong? What goes wrong is that's my dinner, that's my lunch, that's my breakfast. This is, you know, we're eating greasy food, fatty food. And yes, there's a lot of fat in things that people are eating every day. And here's what happens is the fat builds up inside the cell. When the fat builds up, it, by the way, we call it intramyocellular lipid. It's fat inside muscle cells, also in liver cells. Now, the insulin still attaches to the cell, but it can't do its job. It won't work. It's like a gummed up lock. The key doesn't open it. What do I do? Vegan diet means no animal products, no animal fat, zero animal fat. Keep the oils low. And if you follow that, at first, the glucose can't get into the cell. But when you switch to a vegan diet without added fat, the fat disappears. That gets out of the cell. And now the insulin key can work again. And it opens up uh, the little channels to let the glucose into the cell. So the key to diabetes is not to avoid a potato or to avoid rice or to worry about whether rye bread is going to affect your glucose and not to eat apples. That's not the issue. The issue is to get the fat out of your cells. A vegan diet has no animal fat, and you keep it as low. So NIH gave us money to test this, and we did. And we tested a conventional diabetes diet to a plant-based diet. Plant-based diet, no animal products, minimizing oils, low glycemic index foods. So uh, rye bread or pumpernickel bread, say, a better choice than white bread. Um, and what we showed is it works. Uh, the red line here is the people on the conventional diet. They're hemoglobin A1C improved. The blue line is the vegan diet. 1.2% drop. I mean, it's huge. Uh, 1.2 absolute percentage point drop in their hemoglobin A1C from uh, around 8 point, uh, not quite 8.1 to about 6.8. That's I mean, just huge uh, drop in A1C. So um, there you have it, Chuck. That's what we really need to know about diabetes. If we do that, if a person has diabetes now and they do what we've been describing, get the animal products out, keep the oils low. They can get their A1C down. They are not set up to have a bad uh, response to COVID-19. And in the same time frame, they will start losing weight and that's going to help protect them.
Right. And, and it all goes back to lowering your risk and steps that you can take right now, because as of this moment, Dr. Barnard, still no cure for COVID-19 vaccines not available. All we can do is take control of our own health and lower these comorbidities the best that we possibly can. Uh, hypertension. Also, I mean, let's say let's say you get a vaccine. A vaccine is available on I'm going to make it up January 1st. Not everyone is going to take it at that point. It's like the flu shot or, or other vaccines that we have. Some people take it, some don't. Um, and also for some people, the shots are not necessarily, you can't necessarily count on them. With the flu shot, we miss every year. There are people who have flu shots, like I got mine yesterday, um, and it fails. It doesn't necessarily protect them. So, so you want to tackle obesity. You want to tackle diabetes, regardless of whether you got a vaccine. I want to I want to circle back to flu shots uh, a little bit later on in the program. I know that's a that's a hot topic among our viewers, uh, so I think that we should definitely come back to that. But let's move on to another one of those comorbidities because hypertension. That's another one. Again, very early on, they were like, "Wow, okay, high blood pressure. There's something here with COVID nineteen." Yeah, there sure is. And just really quickly, everybody knows that salt increases your blood pressure. So this doesn't mean a zero salt diet but it does mean minimizing about two grams of salt per day or, or a little bit less than that. Uh, for many people, that's step one. Uh, and everybody knows that. But what people don't seem to know is that fat increases blood pressure too. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Here's my, here's my sodium numbers. I just want to make sure that people understand that plant products in their normal state, very low in sodium. Uh, but once you uh, add salt, uh, at the potato chip factory, they're going to be high in sodium. But far worse are, say, cheese loaded with sodium. Terrible. Look at Velveeta, 800 milligrams of sodium in two ounces. It's almost three times worse than potato chips. Okay. But here's the thing about grease. Greasy foods that you eat make your blood, make your blood more greasy, if I put it that way. Uh, they make it more viscous. They make your blood thicker. So your blood pressure will rise because the blood itself is thicker. When a person gets the animal products out of their diet, there's not much saturated fat in their foods anymore. Their blood viscosity goes down. Your blood flows more easily. Your blood pressure comes down. Um, the beauty of it, it happens fast. This is the DASH study. The DASH study brought in people. Uh, the top line here, uh, are, these are people who didn't change their diets. Their blood pressure didn't drop much. Uh, in, in the study. The second line is people eating fruits and vegetables. Their blood pressure dropped. The third line that you see, those are people who ate their fruits and vegetables and reduced meat and fat, and their blood pressure dropped. This is the systolic blood pressure. This is diastolic blood pressure. Same story. So you want to increase fruits and vegetables, reduce the meat, reduce the fat, ideally get rid of it. And the blood pressure lowering is really fast within two weeks. Within two weeks, blood pressure comes down. So it's a good way to go. Um, just real quick, plant-based foods, reduce salt, lace up your sneakers, uh, limit alcohol, limit tobacco. That's the really our recipe for reducing blood pressure. All right. Now, uh, two others that I want to tackle really quickly. And we mentioned these uh, in health headlines, and those are actually the leading causes of death in the U.S., also big time contributors for the severity of COVID-19. Talking specifically here about heart disease, which we spoke about with cholesterol, but also cancer. And as we've discussed time and again on both the Exam Room podcast and here on the Exam Room Live, plant-based diets, better nutrition can really help improve your odds with both. 
That's right. Um, anything that debilitates the body is going to be trouble with regard to COVID. Heart disease can kill you over decades, but in the context of COVID-19, it can kill you within 10 days, two weeks, three weeks. Um, you need to have strong respiratory system, strong cardiovascular system, strong body overall to be able to fight off this virus. Uh, cancer patients, you're already debilitated by the disease process and also by the treatments in some cases. Uh, there are treatments that can reduce your um, ability to fight off infections. And so you want to do everything that you can to be strong. Now, the body's a fragile thing. Even on a really perfect diet, things can happen but we don't want to invite them in to the extent that we can. So a healthy diet with vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and beans, it's high in fiber, which helps reduce your risk of colorectal cancer. It also reduces estrogens in the blood a little bit. Uh, you and I have talked about this with regard to my book, Your Body and Balance, where I've been pushing people to understand how to control the hormones that lead to breast cancer uh, and prostate cancer. A high fiber, low fat diet helps those hormones to get into better balance. And for people previously diagnosed with breast cancer or prostate cancer, a healthy plant-based diet greatly increases the, the likelihood of survival. So we, you want to put it to work no matter what. And if that makes you more resilient in the face of an infection like COVID-19, that's all to the better. Let's kind of put a pin in this discussion. Obviously, there are far more comorbidities associated with COVID-19 than the ones that we just discussed on the day. But to me, it seems like the bottom line is the healthier you are, the better position you are in than to fight the infection if, in fact, you do become infected yourself. Yes. And I also don't want to oversell the degree of our knowledge on this. Keep in mind, we haven't even been dealing with this virus for a year yet. Um, but what we are seeing is, as we started with obesity, um, all of our doctors who are working in the emergency rooms and the ICUs, when we talk all, uh, all, uh, fr so frequently, they are just wringing their hands with what do we do with the obesity epidemic. We knew it increased the risk of breast cancer, it increases the risk of diabetes, it increases the risk of orthopedic problems. But that's the person you can't get off the ventilator. That's the person who is a, who is a set, set up to be a casualty of this of this disease. So we've got to deal with it. And the same thing with diabetes, the same thing with hypertension. Let's circle back to the flu shot. You mentioned that earlier uh, in the show. Um, and a lot of people say, well, when the flu season collides with the current pandemic, we don't know what's going to happen. But a lot of experts are saying it's probably not going to be good. So does that put extra emphasis on the importance of getting a flu shot this year? I think it does. Um, and I have to say, I have been one of the people who says, I'm not so sure I really want an extra vaccination. Who needs it? Um, I'm a pretty healthy person. If I even get influenza, the likelihood of mortality, extremely low. Why bother? However, uh, yesterday I went and got my flu shot and uh, for the first, first time in my life. And I did it because I don't want to be a vessel for another um, virus that I could then pass on to other people. Because in the context of COVID-19, it's just adding too much risk. And let me make a pitch here for um, how we do things at the Barnard Medical Center, because we use a product called FluBlock. And, and I, I should mention that we don't have any economic uh, relationship with FluBlock. In fact, we don't make any money off it at all. Um, but the reason we use FluBlock, it's, a, it's, the, it's the particular influenza vaccine that's a little bit better than the other ones. Um, but if you have an egg allergy, you can't take many of the other um, uh, vaccines that are out there. Flublok is not made with eggs. 
Um, and let me just walk you through that really quickly. A conventional flu vaccine, the way you make it is you take your virus, you actually inject it into an egg and you infect the chick embryo. You let the virus reproduce, you open up the egg, uh, you take out the virus, you kill the virus, and then you inject it back into another egg to make sure that it can't reproduce, that it's inactivated. So every time you want to make a single <laughs> immunization, it takes two eggs. Well, with all the flu shots out there, it's a huge number of eggs that are used, about a million, 100 million per year. Huge. So some people have ethical issues with that. Other people just can't do it because they've got an egg allergy. So that's why you, we use flu block. Uh, flu block is, um, for us, it's more expensive. But when we bring people in, we don't charge them anymore. We charge them the regular price and we don't make any money off of it at all. It's a wash for us. But it's a public service, we believe, to provide the very best vaccine that everybody can, can access. Be sure to join us Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page and YouTube channel for the exam room live. Would love to have you join us there. That is a great opportunity for you to go ahead and interact with Dr. Barnard and the other experts who are on the show. Every single episode, we open up the doctor's mailbag and give you an opportunity to ask the experts a question. So go ahead and join us. You can find a link to both the Facebook page and the YouTube channel in the episode notes. And if you live in the D.C. area, you can schedule an appointment to get your flu shot at the Barnard Medical Center by calling 202-527-7500, or you can hop online, visit barnardmedical.org. And here's something else to think about for those who are living outside of the Washington area. Why not get a little bit of extra help for these comorbidities that we were discussing? Put your mind at ease by scheduling an appointment at the Barnard Medical Center where the doctors and the dietitians they can actually help you treat them and in some cases even reverse these conditions. How often have you heard success stories and data about people lowering their blood pressure, reversing diabetes like Eric Adams or heart disease? Why not give that a shot yourself? Make an appointment today, 202-527-7500 or online at barnardmedical.org. Telemedicine appointments are available in more than a quarter of the country. And a quick story to pass along before we get out of here today. This is something that you may want to keep in mind the next time you're in the store and you got a case of the hungries. Or maybe you're just wrestling with what's for dinner and you want to make sure that it's something healthy. Well, it turns out that the foods that have nutrition info printed on the front of the package are actually healthier than those whose data is found only on the back. Researchers at North Carolina State University studied 21,000 products over the span of 15 years, finding those that had front of packaging, or what is known as FOP labels, they had 4% less sodium, 12.5% fewer calories, and nearly 13% less saturated fat and sugar. The study also found that once companies began to use these BOP labels, their competitors would often amend their recipes or come out with healthier options as well. So in the end, everybody wins. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool study. 
I want to say thank you again to my guests today, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams and Dr. Neil Barnard. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>